Hey, it's Alan Doyle, and you're listening to Tobin Tonight. Alan, buddy, what do you ask? What are you at? Nice to be on there. Thanks for having me. That's nice of you. I'm a fellow Newfoundlander, love Great Big Sea, and, yeah. you know, you've done very well for yourself. Thanks so much. Yeah, pretty lucky, I must say. You were just on tour. How'd that go? Great fun. I spent, uh, well, March is always a bit of a, a go in, uh, you know, when you're in a bit of a Celtic band, so it's it's a bit, it's great fun, and we were mostly in the U.S., had a grand time, and, uh, uh, you know, it's really fun to be kind of going back to some of the older places and even more fun to always get to go to a few new places and, and bring, you know, the new band and the new sound and the new thing. It's, it's good fun. I'm, I just feel lucky, man, to still be in the game, to be honest. <laughs> and let's talk about that game because it started way back when you were 17. I was watching George Stropolopoulos, you know, to do some research on you. And in that interview, it was revealed at 17, a teacher gave you $300 to go buy a guitar and right. si and since then you never looked back can you explain that story a bit more like how did this conversation come up and what teacher was it uh it was a teacher of mine from uh mount pearl uh named uh kathy callahan and she uh uh she was um uh my grade 10 teacher i guess a grade 9 teacher i can't remember and uh she i thought my uncle leonard had this great electric guitar that I wanted to buy but I couldn't I didn't have enough money on anything so I just happened to mention it to her one day and she said well I'll loan you I'll loan you the money you can pay me back you know over the summer or whatever and so I did and that's how I got it and that was that electric guitar I still have it in my studio and it's just it's one of those things that lives with me uh you know and like it's nice to have when you're a kid have someone believe in you like that you know and I, I, I'm just curious because I think what she should have said to you is, I'll give you $300, and when you become famous, I want some of that interest brought back to me. <laughs> yeah, it would have been all right. If she, if she could have got like 10% on how much that guitar earned me, it would have been pretty good. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, people know you from Great Big C, uh, great music, the great energy. Crowds loved you. Uh, we're talking at the Junos, the ECMAs. You just ate it all up. Uh, take me through that journey from forming the band right up to the split. Oh, just as well, it's the thrill of a lifetime, man. I mean, the whole ride was like something I, I you know, I dreamt of, you know, as a kid. And, and when, when Sean and Bob and Daryl, it's Sean McCann, Bob Hallett, and Daryl Power approached me in the latter part of 1992 to join them in forming a new band it was it was it was quite a you know an opportunity because those three they had had a very successful band in newfoundland before great big c and in the sort of really pumping downtown music scene they were the biggest band called a band called rankin street and they were they were going to sort of they were playing primarily irish newfoundland music and wanted to add to that you know, some elements of like rock and roll and country and stuff and have someone who wrote their own songs. So they found me and, and asked me to join and, and went from there. I mean, you know, to make a long story short, I mean, we started playing like crazy around St. John's and then moved around the island. And then towards the middle of 1994, we, uh, we got signed to Warner Music Canada and started playing, you know, all across Canada. And then very quickly got signed to Warner Germany and started touring in Denmark and Germany and then got signed by Sire in the U.S. and sort of started focusing on the U.S. And it's just been like a, 
an incredible ride that went, you know, for 20 years. Amazing. It's something to watch because they even showed you on George Stropolopoulos, um, you know, when you were first beginning, just so young and all you wanted really was just to be noticed. And now it's like you can't go anywhere in the world without someone saying a great big C tune. I know um, they had these Bose speakers that you can kind of purchase and they play the music very loudly. And I know up here in Ottawa, if I'm going around Parliament, I'll play some Lukey's Boat. I'll play uh, some CNO Cares. And people will come up to me and say, oh, you like Great Big C? And I was like, I, I guess, you know, like, I-, I do. But I guess I'm also, I have to because I'm a Newfoundlander, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somewhere, somewhere along the way, you know, it was like um, we, we benefited so heavily and so tremendously from the the support of you know Newfoundlanders who were living away, who somehow felt, um, if not obligated, to support the band or to, to you know to spread the word about the band, they felt inclined to. You know, it's like, uh, and we we were so lucky, man, to have that. I I was called the Newfoundland diaspora. You know, like the it's like having a cast of people sent out around the world to pave the way for you. Pretty lucky. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's. It's so interesting because when I was smaller, my brother, of course, was a great, uh, a great, great big C fan, um, and that's how I kind of got exposed to it. But I remember watching on CMT, and we saw "When I'm Up, I Can't Get Down," and I was thinking, and I said this earlier with the Anna Sisters too, when we had them on in season one. Uh, to see Newfoundlanders on CMT back then was a big deal for someone my age because I was looking and saying. All right, Newfoundlanders can crack the mainstream because you're looking at Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson on CMT, and then next minute you got Deanna Sisters and Great Big C on a, a countdown. So it was tremendous. Yeah, it was excellent. It was a great time. And in when we started kicking around in the mid-'90s, there was a big Celtic wave going across the country where, you know, the bands from Nova Scotia were quite popular, right, like the Lankin family and Baron McNeil's and and Ashley McIsaac and Natalie McMaster and the Baron McNeils and, and all those bands. And it was just, it was seemed to be a time when all the record companies and stuff were signing anything that had a fiddle in it, you know? And, uh, and we, we were just lucky to be sort of born into a pop culture that was well, was ready for what we were doing. And what are some of your favorite tunes you guys performed? And great big C. Well, I always like playing Ordinary Day just because it registered with people so quickly. And so, you know, that like I just and, – and with great big C, too, I always loved doing the a cappella numbers, you know, because it was the real strong suit of the band. I always felt it was, you know, myself and Sean and Bob and Daryl singing. No, I agree with you, Alan. I think that's something that great big C did really, really well, and that's why kind of is a little bit interesting and conflicting for this next question here. But, like – when did you feel it was time to move on from Great Big C and start your own solo career? And was it hard to leave that band behind? Well, I mean, I, I never actually moved on, you know. And you know, and and by the strict definition of it, the band it hasn't officially broken up. Uh, in, at the end of the 2013 tour, Sean McCann decided he wanted to leave the band, and which he did. And then we spent about two years trying to figure out a way to amicably do it without him, you know, and we couldn't. And the only way to go forward without Sean was going to be with some kind of big fight or litigation or something like that. And I didn't want to do it. You know, I didn't want the last thing that the three or four of us did together was have a big row. So I just said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go do my own thing. 
And if this surfaces again, I'll be ready, you know, and I didn't want to burn all those bridges and all that kind of thing. So in the weirdest kind of way, I never, I never actually decided <laughs> to go on my own. It was kind of decided for me. <laughs> uh, how do you feel when a guy like Mark Critch, who I like, by the way, impersonates you? Do you think it's a spot on impression? <laughs> it's fantastic. Well, it's it's the greatest um you know, indication that you're still <laughs> that you're in the game is when you're worthy of impersonation. And I've known Mark for oh my god, 25 years probably, and he's a real dear friend of mine. And and but it is terrifying when you find out that he's going to do impersonation of you because you never know what it's going to be. And he always torments me. He always sends me like photos <laughs> and getting on the outfit and stuff so you know what's coming on Tuesday night or whatever. Um. You know, ultimately, it's a real flattering thing, though, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's so, it, it's so nice of him to include me in all their great work, and I'm just, you know, it's, uh, it's, it just feels good to be a part of it, in all honesty. Well, I mean, the thing that I kind of look at too is you even retweeted some of the stuff saying that he does a better impress or an impersonation of you than you. Um, but I think it has to do a little bit like, again, not to take away from your likability as well, but I mean, the Newfoundland culture of things is also, you know, is very laid back and being made fun of. Right. So you take it. Yeah, you're right. It's that, that kind of thing is like, especially when it's done by someone who's as arty and, and as talented as Mark, you know, it's just like, you know, he's, he's only impersonating people that are. You know that are kind of worthy of it in a way, and to, for him to think that you're worthy of it is a great compliment. Now, when he was, in, did he ever like the first time he did it? Did he phone you up or let you know, or was it a surprise no, to you? It was just very much a surprise to me, and the, I, I didn't see this the full sketch, but he sent me the whole week. He was kept sending me photos of himself in the costume and stuff, and I was like, oh my god, what is going to happen? Were you, <laughs> like, were you terrified? Terrified, of course. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, but it was like, you know, I knew it would be really funny and all that stuff. So, you know, Mark, like, make no mistake, you know, Mark Critch is one of the most talented people I ever met in my life, you know, and and he's a great actor and a great comedian and a great impersonator and a great, you know, a great sort of pop culture uh, cynic. And it's just, he's, he's a great dude. And it was just, you know, the whole thing has been great fun. And he, I think we we might do something together in the in the fall where... Both he and I play me. Oh, that that'd be pretty cool to see because he did one with Peter Mansbridge with Peter he playing Peter and interviewing Peter. So I'd be interested to see that. But um the kind of funny part that I liked about that one was where he says Alan Doyle's sad songs that you can get up or get up and have a dance to. Would you ever sad release songs, <laughs> sad songs you can get up and have a dance to? I love it. Would you would you ever release an album like that, Alan? I think we we have to now, don't we? <laughs> yeah, I think you Definitely should. Definitely should do it. I I liked his rendition of uh, Adele's "Hello." I think you can do a better one though. <laughs> that was a gag we used to do in Great Big Sea all the time about how we could, you know, make a you know a party song out of anything, and we used to do this gag where we'd play the saddest songs ever, and you know, while my guitar gently weeps, except it was a funny drinking song, <clears throat> you know, or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it's just fun. It's all fun and and nothing but fun. And of course, from there, you've also you branched into TV and film as well, teaming up with Russell Crowe and Alan Hocko on their projects. How did all that come to be? Well, acting sort of came to me as well. I never went looking for it. The I'd, I'd met Russell in, when he was working in Toronto, 
on a movie in the early 2000s, a movie called Cinderella Man, and and he and I ended up writing songs for a record he was doing, and I ended up producing a record for him, and then we wrote some more songs for Great Big C Records and for movies and for stuff, and then seven or eight years after after I met Russell, he they, they were doing the Robin Hood movie, and they needed a a fella, an Irishy sounding fellow who could play the lute, <laughs> and uh, Russell said, "I know a guy who's Irishy sounding and plays the lute," <laughs> and. Uh, they called me and I went into the little table read audition kind of thing in LA and I got the part. And, uh, um, and so it's oddly, that was, became my first acting gig was in the big Ridley Scott movie. And, uh, shortly, I mean, not long after I got back from that in 2000, I suppose, uh, uh, 2010, I should say, um, they, uh, Alan Hocko and the guys, um, you know, landed the contract to do Republic of Doyle, and they wrote this recurring part for me in there. And then, you know, a couple of people saw that, and then I ended up getting another gig with Russell in another movie, and then doing Murdoch Mysteries and a couple of indie movies, and <laughs> just like, it's kind of funny that you know it's, it's become part of my life. But I really love doing it; it's great fun. Now, and all this started, of course, you said acting came to you, but, you know, in a way, it's very true because you were credited in a movie as Boy on the Bridge, and that's hence where you got your album title to. Because yeah. um, yeah. I, I know in the interview you mentioned that you went into the, I think it was like the IMB or the movie database to that's get right. it. Inter- Internet Movie Database, yeah, IMDb. There yeah. You, yeah. So, you, yeah, you mentioned that in the past interview. Um, now, of course, I'm not going to get into, like how it came to be but i i really like this part about it in that interview where you said that you used to go out on that bridge and think about your future what kind of things did you think about as a seven or eight year old that were so deep that you went out on a bridge well it's again a very practical reality of my young life you know petty harbor is has a bridge right in the middle of it there's a river runs right through the middle of petty harbor and i my house was very close to that bridge and i used that's where i used to go wait for the school bus and so I would sit there, and or, or if I when I got a bit older, I would hitchhike from there, and that's just where, you know, you stood, you know, the way for seeing in rural Newfoundland communities, you just there's somewhere where everybody stands, and that's where everybody stood, and I just it was I used to stand there and just I'd wonder more than dream, I suppose, about what else there was because it was a fairly isolated little town, and with like tall hills on three sides of it, and then the ocean on the other side, and so it felt a little insular right so and i often wondered what it was like in you know london england or toronto or los angeles or like anybody would but I, you know and i wondered specific stuff about how do you, hockey players and and all my daydreaming was done there and 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 it was so funny that when i you know i when i was like i say when i was in my 20s or 30s or whatever and i went looking for a title for my first solo record someone mentioned that i had a there was actually a credit from when they did this movie in petty harbor when i was a kid and that i had no idea that I actually had a credit for it but it was a movie called whale for the killing and they asked me and my cousin denny to stand at a bridge and throw rocks when richard or, or i can't remember the actor's name had walked past and we just did that and they paid us 15 dollars each and so lo and behold i got a credit alan Doyle, boy on bridge whale for the killing and now, and of course, you tell you tell the story that you got fifteen, but you didn't. You told your parents or you told your mother that you only got ten. 
Oh, yeah, that was the trick we used to do all the time whenever you got a bit of money, you know, because mom made us save our money for school and hockey and all that stuff. So, so you know, if you made 20 bucks, you go home and tell mom you made 10. <laughs> She'd let you take two of it and you go out with, you know, that kind of stuff. And and the, the one of the other things I want to mention before we kind of clue it all up here is, you know, Newfoundlanders seem to run to CBC. I mean, you had Republica Doyle, you got Rick Mercer, this hour is 22 minutes. Even on the hockey broadcast, you got Bob Cole. Uh, at one point, you we were even doing um, your song was actually used for the CBC, like fall intro. So, That's right. I've seen a little. Of yeah, there you go. Um, do you think we are finally getting recognized for our talent? Well, I think we always had a good leg in there, you know, like the, I mean, the people, the Newfoundlanders have been doing well on the CBC for a couple of decades, at least, you know, I mean, Rex Murphy has been at CBC radio forever and now we have Tom Power and there's always been a few, I think we've always been sort of disproportionately represented in Canadian comedy. I think because we're probably really funny compared to most, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, especially here in St. John's, there's uh, a hearty theater world, right, where that that just, you know, births play people that are comfortable on stage doing comedy or doing hosting or narration or acting or so that, you know, the LSP Hall and all like there's a there's a there's a, a spawning ground, if you will, for people like Mark Critch and Tom Power and. And Rick and Mary and Mary, you know, and all those Codco guys and gals, and then actors, of course, like Joel Hines and playwrights like Robert Chase and and you know and people like Alan Hocko and 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 so that part of the world, that that whole theater, television, film part of the world is just it's been also it's, it's been so active here for a while that I think it's it sort of became undeniable that. You know, that, that's a pot that you would look to. And, and, of course, the music industry speaks for itself as well, doesn't it? I mean, there's been a an, a different kind of music been made here for as long as we've been in Canada. So it's, I think it's only right that they would look to it as, as something that's a kind of fertile ground. And, you know, the final thing I want to say, Alan, and I hope this doesn't catch you too much off guard, but uh, do you got your guitar handy or do you mind strumming us a tune? I don't have a guitar, but I'm happy to sing one for you. Sure, go for it. Yeah, man. The uh, I, could, I always love to sing like a little bit of the. Uh, I wrote this song for the Blam Bridge record. I wrote it with Russell actually after his first visit in Newfoundland, and it was. Uh, I asked Russell what he thought about it. You know, and he said, "Man, I feel like I've, I left a place, and I came to a different place." And you know, he just he figured St. John's was like a city state up in the middle of the ocean. You know, and it kind of is in a way. And he, and he also, I think he was also charmed by the fact that I was so attached to the place I was from, you know, and I was so lucky to have a place where I felt like I belonged there. And and then, you know, I told him the story of Newfoundland immigration in and out of Canada for, you know, since Confederation. And we just, we wrote a song called Where I Belong. And, uh, and uh, I'll just sing you a little bit. The chorus kind of goes like this. So I'll cast my leaving shadow and I'll be Canadian. But distance won't decide what matters to the hard rocks of loving sun. And when I'm thinking of St. John's, I'll bring her closer with this song. I don't know where I'm going, but I know where I belong. That's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight. Our thanks to Alan Doyle for coming on the show. 
Remember, you can find past, present, and future episodes on TobinTonight.com, Spotify, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob saying, If Great Big C or Alan Doyle can't get you up and dancing, then don't. Buy Mark Critch's Alan Doyle-based album, Songs to Get Up and Have a Dance To. You'll just be disappointed. Thanks for listening, and good night. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.